0: Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Max Haven and I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice here at
1: Lakehead University. And I'm Aris Comporoso Safanasio and I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. And I'm Adam Kingsmith, a PhD candidate in politics at York University. And I'm excited
2: to announce that in this episode, we're gonna be joined by Rebecca Rouse, who is a senior lecturer in the division of game development and the University of Hobda, Sweden. Rouse's research focuses both on the history and practice of storytelling with new technologies. Rouse creates projects for museums, heritage sites, interactive installation, movable books and theatrical performance, all with the threat of investigating and inventing new modes of storytelling, as well as accompanying historical research into connections of today's emerging media with technologies of the past. If you're curious to learn more about their work, check out their website, RebeccaRouse.com. And and again, we're so happy to have you on on the podcast today. Thanks for reaching out. Could you maybe describe a little bit for our listeners what you mean in your work by like critical dialogic pedagogy as a feminist practice, and, and maybe a bit of, of what drew you to that approach. And I think in particular, you, you kind of make this distinction between dialogue, discussion and debate that I think is really interesting. If you would maybe talk a bit more about that.
3: Sure, David Bohm is a key figure in, in dialogue. If folks are interested to learn more about dialogue, Bohm's book on dialogue is really excellent. He's actually a physicist, but um, uh, the idea with dialogue is a distinct communication practice that's different from discussion or debate. Whereas in debate, you know, there we have a gamified uh, communication practice, right? There's a winner in a debate and a loser. Um, and the communication and debate has certain aims and certain methods that, uh, you know, help to achieve that aim. Your aim is to win. And so listening becomes um, weaponized, really, to listen for your opponent's weaknesses. Um, uh, communication may be exaggerated because you want to, in a debate, probably, you uh, Really polarize yourself from your opponent because you want there to be a real clear choice between you and the opponent. So you may exaggerate differences in the debate, for example. And again, the whole point is to win. in In a discussion, usually we're looking for a kind of layering of ideas, and and in the communication, so we want to make sure that you know this point of view is represented, that point of view comes in, that point of view. But there's not maybe very much real deep engagement between the points of view it's more of a layering practice and in dialogue the idea is to very deeply listen and to question each other for understanding uh, to uh, try to co-create sort of the rules of engagement as you go uh, in a way that attends to the process and quality of the communication and uh Surfaces tension, surfaces difference, doesn't try to resolve difference, um, but to some degree bridge difference through understanding um, and tries to make space for those who aren't there to come in, um, to call those in who haven't been in the dialogue. So it, the aim of dialogue is really shared uh, shared understanding, which is different from a kind of presentation of a slate of uh Ideas or perspectives, and and debate as uh, you know a gamified communication form for winning and losing.
0: I wanted to maybe follow up on one of the pieces of yours that we read about the problems with the instrumentalization of empathy. There seems to be this easy idea that we should just empathize more with other people in a way that kind of erases the pretty substantial differences in power and privilege that. Underlie social relations. And I wondered if you could kind of unpack that a little bit for us, especially like the fundamental limits of this idea that you could just use games to teach people to care about each other or care about social issues.
3: I appreciate the impulse to use a game to fix a problem. Like I appreciate that impulse in design at large, I understand where that comes from. But I think a lot of times it gets deployed in such a way that it um, doesn't do the work that people may think they're doing or that they want to be doing. I mean, I've even I've been in this position myself. I think with social justice work, there's a lot of different ways your work can be, you know, subverted by powerful forces and you can end up, you know, even creating harm, you know, or maybe just perpetuating status quo when maybe you didn't intend to. And I, I see that happen a lot in some of these very um, like prescripted or directed design and game approaches like you're mentioning, Max. Um, and I, would, I wouldn't I would say don't do it, but I would just say, you know, slow it way down. I, in, in that piece about the instrumentalization against the instrumentalization of empathy, I'm really asking or advocating for a much slower approach to this kind of design project. Because I think that for, you know, authentic and meaningful and deep transformational relationships to be created, which really has to be the foundation of any of these kind of projects, that just takes a lot of time, right, and and intention.
0: A lot of what we typically identify as conspiracy fantasies, and especially the kind of like quite oppressive ones, are often based on a very kind of like knee-jerk empathization So we've been thinking a lot about the QAnon phenomenon and the way in which it calls for its subjects to have a kind of reactive empathization with, with, for instance, millions of children who are being abused by these terrible actors. Where I was interested to follow up with you is thinking about how there's a danger to games that sort of and gamified platforms that call on a very easy, simple form of of sort of sympathy or empathy. And that what you are calling us to is to use these platforms as a method of actually building longer, more sustained dialogues that build complex solidarities and understandings.
3: Yeah, because I think that easy fix is so, I mean, I get where it comes from, right? I mean, it's so seductive. These are terrible problems, complex, terrible problems. If we had some kind of quick technological fix, that'd be great. I mean, and, and we have so much in culture that encourages us to think that might be possible, right? That whole you know narrative around technology making things easier, making things more efficient. But I think that unfortunately, some of that kind of design, you know, empathy games. It can really um, let people off the hook of doing any of the actual work. So you so you play a game and you feel bad for somebody or, or you know some group of people, um, and you may feel that like, you know, that was a really good thing that you felt bad, and you've kind of done the work. <laughs> um, and then there's not a lot of research to show that the games have much more effect than that, and in fact. Um, I shouldn't just say games. I mean, it's kind of immersive empathy experiences are even broader than games, but it seems to me that in the, in the research I was doing for that article, a lot of times the biggest impact is for the person who made the thing. The designer really benefits in terms of social capital, sometimes monetarily too. Um, and there are it's the, the sort of field or the, the genre is rife with examples of people who kind of come from outside communities and do this. And they may have the best of intentions, but it doesn't seem to have a lot of impact for, for the group they're hoping to help. Seems to have significant impact for, for the designer or the design team. And that seems to be a way that this work can so easily be subverted to perpetuate harms or perpetuate status quo.
1: We we have in mind an example that we have discussed before in some of our previous interviews of a gamified intervention. We have been trying to make sense of what its impact really is and its intentions. Uh, And I'm talking about how. I'm not sure if you, uh, how much you know about it or how, how, you know, what your views on this is. It's essentially just for our listeners to remind them uh, a US state funded attempt in conjunction with designers at Cambridge University to gamify inoculation theory. And that's so that they can introduce their players uh, and in the broader population to the ills of political misinformation, the practices of disinformation and conspiratorialism precisely through make them play that game. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about this kind of intervention
3: Well, I want to thank you for sharing that example with me because I hadn't known about it before and I didn't get to spend a ton of time with it, but I did take a look at it. That is fascinating. Um, I was really interested to see, you know, they've tested this with almost 700 people or something and see that there's a slight, I guess, slight improvement in their um, gullibility (laughs) uh, regarding misinformation after playing it. Uh, I think that's fascinating. I also think it's um, potentially dangerous if we think that is going to fix the problem. So I, I guess I'm almost more concerned with what is the way in which it gets deployed and what's the rhetoric that's wrapped around it than it itself as a game about teaching a kind of meta-literacy, which is, you know, Yes, we should have meta literacy skills like it's fine to teach it through a game. Um, But if we think that's going to solve the problem that's threatening democracy, it's not at all. (laughs) Uh, I mean, even on a simple level, how would you get the people who are addicted to misinformation to play the game?
1: No, exactly. I mean, I, I think this really does resonate. These are some of the, cons- the, the the thoughts that we have been discussing as well in terms of the assumptions behind who the audience for this is and the, the expected uh, responses that you get from such an audience. Uh, but, but also perhaps there is something there about, we've been talking about meaningful play and, and the, the question of empathy and community through playing. And uh, I suppose, yeah, I wonder what, whether you think that these kind of elements have a place in...
3: I, I kind of have a problem with the phrase meaningful play, <laughs> which maybe I'm a little curmudgeonly, but I mean, I understand the the intention behind it in, within Games Scholarship and the Games community. I get that. On a colloquial kind of level, it bothers me because if there's meaningful play, that means there's some play that's meaningless. And I don't really think there's any meaningless play. Like, I think that play is this deeply meaningful activity, whether it's, um, you know, children playing in a backyard or, you know, grownups who've been playing world of Warcraft together for 15 years. I think it's, it's meaningful. Um, And even play that gets kind of dismissed as meaningless is doing meaningful work. Um, Whether it's regards to that community of play or the embedded values that are uh, baked in and communicated and enacted um, through that game or play structure. Um, So I guess I think play is deeply meaningful. And I do think play and intentionally designed and created communities of play could absolutely help, um, you know, repair and further democratic principles, for sure. (laughs) Um, I wonder if they may be, if it may be easier to achieve impact in a physical play medium as opposed to a digital one um, with regards to democratic kind of ethos, if that's the target. Um, Because sometimes the digital medium becomes so rigid that it's very difficult to change the game when we may need to change the game so that we can include the players we want to include. Whereas in the physical play space, we may be more able um, to change the rules, change the game, uh, to include others, um, if inclusion is part of, say, one of the core democratic principles, perhaps.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's really interesting. I wonder if you had thoughts on, like, maybe also the relationship between, like, empathy and, like, the materiality of, like, presence versus, like, a digital mediation, you know? Like, do do you think that the digital mediation can kind of increase empathy in some ways because it can reach larger audiences or there are also limitations to that? Uh, I'd love to hear some thoughts.
3: I'm not sure about that. Um, I was reading this book by Katie Day Good. She's a, a communications scholar. It's called, I think it's called Bring the World Bring the World to the Child. Um, it's a fascinating book about the history of educational technologies and going back to the 19th century. Um, and she points out, uh, you know, that these, these narratives about... Um, the world being smaller than it used to be and the need to educate the child as a kind of uh, cosmopolitan global citizen. These are really old narratives and they were used to bring really old tech into uh, classrooms. What struck me though, reading that is that, wow, for a really long time now, uh, there's been a preference for experiencing the other through mediation instead of like actually, so instead of actually bringing others who are different into the classroom, technology has been doing that, like for a real long time now. (laughs) Um, What is that preference about? That bothers me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really good point because then you don't actually have to have contact with these groups in like a physical way. There's always just like an imagined version of them that you get to interface with in a very safe way. And you give some great examples of this uh, in your article as well like, the VR in the line outside, like, a it's, like, a, a food line trying to get money, uh, get food at a food bank, right, and it's, like, the character has, like, a heart attack, and, and then, uh, yeah, there's, like, this very much mediation between, like, you're, know, like, observing this. It's almost like a National Geographic thing as opposed to actually experiencing it. Um, I mean, it kind of, in some ways, r- r- the challenge that you're speaking to in general is, like, also the way that, like, game studies and game theory like thinks about itself like i I really enjoyed uh the piece you did uh with with amy uh karen in in feminism and visual culture because of like the really the 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 sound pedagogical grounding and and some of the critique you make about the way that the game theory thinks about itself and the point that that you made that i thought was really strong for me was that most game uh studies scholars uh, look at games as culture but not in culture which sidesteps this kind of deeper interrogation of how games operate with and through larger, you know, social and political forces. And so you kind of talk about how often like the way that game game theorists and game scholars think about games is like almost as fans doing fan-based history of gaming. And you, and you suggest maybe an alternative way to think about this just at a very basic level is we need to think about it more as like a media archaeology. And maybe if you could talk a little bit more about that and the ways in which, game theory and gamers often kind of like, I don't know, take a very positive and narrow approach to the analysis of the things they're actually trying to study.
3: Oh, sure. I think um, I would just say first that that critique of games in culture versus games as culture, that's really Adrian Shaw's. That's from a, a wonderful article of hers. I think it's called Games Games as Culture, actually I think is the title of the article. Um, so we were picking up on that, Amy, Karan and me in, in, in that uh, course design. Yeah, I think there's there's been a sort of sad tendency in especially game history um, to to look very narrowly and to have this kind of, um, you know, very technological definition of what the object of inquiry is like, okay, we're just looking at um, video games or, you know, these fine point distinctions between video games and computer games. Or we're only looking at, you know, the the the, uh, the scope of inquiry just gets so narrowly drawn. And then that allows, you know, this kind of myopic view that doesn't see, you know, larger connections and longer sort of pattern recognition over time. Erki Hutamo's scholarship really stands in contrast to that. I, I think he does a marvelous um, job in terms of pointing the way uh, for, for Games History Scholarship from a media archaeological point of view. And uh, he's got a couple of wonderful pieces, uh, you know, looking at the, uh, the history of the 1980s arcade going back to Victorian arcades and, uh, you know, hand cranked machines and peep practices and all of this. And he's another companion piece that looks at domestic games and uh, early consoles, but, but really looks at domestic games in the Victorian household um, and draws those connections. And I think that when we are able to look a little broader and longer then we can see how we don't get so trapped by these rhetorics of the new and the never before and the faster than never and all that. Uh, which you know, maybe there's some truth to that too. But then we can see some of these larger patterns and ways in which, yeah, okay, all play is meaningful. And you know, how dominant narratives may be embedded and, and enacted through these different kinds of play across time. And we can think critically about how, you know, an arcade game today is similar and different from, uh, you know, a Victorian arcade experience, but see that we are part of a legacy of things. We're not, you know, an island.
0: <laughs> I guess uh, I wanted to maybe follow up on this and and share with you something that we're tracking and ask you to help us unpack it a bit. Um, one of the things that we've we've been thinking about in following the rise of Fairly dangerous um, conspiracy fantasies has been the way that they frame their adherents or the people who are seduced by them as a certain kind of heroic figure. And sometimes it's a bit of a tragic heroic figure, like you realize there's a great conspiracy out there, you can't possibly do anything about it, but at least you know. But and sometimes um, but tragically, it results in a very active heroic figure who, for instance, goes and Shoots up a pizza parlor, or shows up at a pizza parlor in Washington D.C. with a with a machine gun, uh, claiming that they want to liberate children trapped in the basement. Um, and I, I wanted to tie this to the sort of the, the really excellent work that you've done, um, outlining like a feminist critique of the way that video games typically, in the kind of conventional video game industry, presents the heroic agent, the player as this kind of interventionist force in the world, um, that in so many ways just eliminates complexity, uh, flexibility, adaptiveness, connectivity. Um, I, I wonder if you can just share with our listeners, some of the kind of conceptual resources for thinking differently uh, for, for making a critique of that kind of agent that is presented in like the conventional video game world. And then also, uh, what other possibilities are out there for thinking about gaming differently, and thinking about playing games and the agent behind the game differently?
3: Well, okay, there's a lot in there, um, but I think one one sort of strand of that is is thinking critically about the platform. Uh, uh, James Malazita has done some wonderful work around this in in terms of developing more critical platform studies, but taking a look at the the medium, the computational medium itself, and thinking about okay, what does that um encourage or enable you know what what kind of stories are easier for us to tell what uh, what kind of um what does that encourage us to tell in terms of a story and what a hero would be like um and looking at some of the and we can also think about media archaeology here too and look at the history of how these systems were developed for who and why they weren't originally developed as gaming systems right but it's for example if you look at unreal uh there's a fan, the game engine, there's a fantastic uh, backend called Blueprints. It's really a great graphical um, programming interface. You don't have to be a programming whiz to be able to develop a game in Unreal. And that's very cool. And also uh, we could talk about that in terms of accessibility of the medium. But the way the, the platform is designed is it's really easy to develop a shooter. And it's really easy to develop stories in which, and this is just a computer science thing, we privilege abstraction. And we think about things as you know, discrete entities. that can be categorized in a hierarchical fashion you know, that are disconnected from other entities, right? That's like object orientation. That's, just, that's programming, right? But that may enable or encourage us to develop certain kinds of narratives and interactions uh, that, that are easier to do. Because on some level, the, what we produce for the computational medium has to be legible to the computer, right? I mean, it, it's, that has to be the number one thing. <laughs> um, and if you look then at the history of the creation of those uh, systems like Unreal, it was developed you know, close collaboration with the US military, um, developed uh, America's army for it early on. You know, that, was, that was first te- as a, a training and recruitment tool, then later really as a game you know, including that on every uh, shipment of the game engine, you know, for free, right? So, and, and we can look back much further in terms of the development of the computer science field, uh, in the U.S. at least, coming directly out of World War II, the, the need to commercialize um, declassified war technology, the computer. And how are they going to do that? Uh, industry and military, industry and government together, uh, placing computers for free at universities, Um, And then that leading to the need to train staff, to run the machines, eventually to the development of the uh, the computer science discipline, even in the earliest uh, curriculum designs in computer science, um, like the first curriculum design came out of the ACM Curriculum Committee in 1965, there's no mention of computers in society, which is a pretty bold move, right, for a wartime technology to say we're not even going to go there. But that doesn't come into the ACM curriculum until later in the 70s. Late 70s, there's an elective added to the curriculum about computers and society. That edition of the curriculum got really critiqued for not having enough math in it. And it's still like an ongoing struggle today right? to bring these kind of historical and critical um, social perspectives into into the education. So the platform itself, like the machine, I think, um, encourages certain kinds of production and then the platform of the education of how to use the machine or design with the machine also has certain embedded values that are that are historical and and technically and socially entangled. I think I kind of went on a tangent about the history of computer science education. I'm not sure if that was no, but
1: but helpful. I think a lot of what you were just discussing about this importance of the platform and education, and then many of the elements and the concepts that we've been discussing so far around um games and critique of games from your perspective, I'm wondering how they speak to this central idea of our, our project and our podcast, which is ga- conspiracy games and counter games. So, um, how w- what your thoughts are around the the construction and uh, play of counter games and the, the possibilities that inhere in that... Uh, in that process, the perhaps emancipatory or the radical possibilities of, of uh, b- getting involved in, in that process of, of counter games.
3: Oh, I love your concept of counter games um, and the idea of playing back, I think is super cool. Um, I think Sufik Mukherjee's um, book about post-colonialism and empire playing back is a great uh, uh, source to point to also. I think uh, one of the potentials I see in counter gaming has to do with um, what I think the most fun game is. I think the most fun game is designing a game. And I think bringing people into, bringing communities into design together may be one of the spaces, you know, for real meaningful liberation and exchange. Instead of thinking, I as the designer, I'm going to kind of on my own or with my team develop this thing that will liberate everyone else, and then I deploy it. Uh, Instead, thinking, hey, let's me and my team think about how we can co-design, really. I mean, co-create, share our knowledge, and in turn, learn from the communities we work with to together design. Whatever we make in the end as the game may not end up being the most meaningful part. The most meaningful part might be the communication, the work, and the transformation that happens together in co-creation, in, in co-design.
0: And one of the things we're grappling with is that, you know, there's an element to conspiratorialism that is lonely and paranoid and unhappy, but there's another element of it that people have been paying less attention to where it's, for its many of its participants, it's deeply fun, it's, it's deeply rewarding, and it's deeply social. Um, and so we're curious about how if, like, if, if we were to seek to challenge this this sort of cultural phenomenon, this polit- political and cultural phenomenon, we might need to think about those kind of affects and relations as well. I guess, I I mean, I, I don't want to put you on the, the spot with this question, but like if, if you were given a commission, a, lo- a large chunk of money to do whatever you wanted to try and um make an intervention in the space of the kind of rise of conspiratorial fantasies that we're seeing today. Um, what what would your where would you begin with that?
3: Before I say that, I was just going to say though, I think there's a big difference between the idea of co-creating and the way the Q community is really structured, from my understanding of it. I'm not an expert on it. But it seems to me like Q posts these kind of leading questions, right? And then there's sort of this set of interlocutors that really make sense of it all. And then this much, much larger group that uh, receives that narrative. So it's actually a very small group of co-designers, I think. Uh, And that's a little different than what I'm suggesting in terms of a co-design process where it's not like we then deliver this to some larger group, but it is just for us who are in the process, really. Maybe that's a distinction that's important. So, but, but if, okay, if I had unlimited resources to try and design an intervention, where would I start? I don't know. I think I've had some very meaningful experiences collaborating and observing in a Montessori school at a primary level, three, four, and five-year-old classroom. And I think some of, I'm, I would really like to learn more about um, some of that uh, perspective on early childhood education. And I think, because I think, frankly, I think the seeds for democracy, you know, core values get planted really young in people, really early in people. And so I wonder if some of the research, um, it would be helpful to shift some of the research Uh, to work with younger people, and to learn first from the people who are already experts at working with very young people. Um, And and I was impressed with the the ethos of Montessori in terms of, and read some of her work, um, like her book, The Secret of Childhood is Fantastic, Um, uh, in terms of her ethos of pacifism and democracy and uh, self-actualization and an agency in, in education. I think the classroom is the most exciting place. I think that, that the, the space of pedagogy is still the space where so much radical change could happen and hasn't yet. Uh, you know that, that we're, And we're all, if, if we're talking about academics, we're in classrooms, like here, here is where we can, in terms of sphere of influence, right? Where we can really impact So I think I'm more interested in looking into the classroom space, whether it is with our university students or much, much younger students, as opposed to thinking about designing some game for some general public, you know, that would try and solve some grand problem. I think looking into the classroom first and the politics and um, oppression that happens in the classroom, I think could be a space of great uh, germination for moving forward. So if I had a million bucks, I guess that's (laughs) where I would put it.
2: And it makes sense. I mean, even just in, again, when you talked about your pedagogy in the article, uh, the kinds of outcomes that you, you were allowed to engineer in the classroom by taking different approaches to the learning uh, in, your, in your core course on like games and the history of games uh, was really fascinating. I mean, it almost makes me feel like I wish there was a game that was made that was about making games. Uh, I think that would be really interesting. Do you know of anything like that that exists out of curiosity?
3: The metagame, no, you should make it.
0: We are working on a game, but it's not a game about making games, but maybe it should be a game about making games. We're working on a on a kind of board card game about uh,
2: conspiracy fantasies called Deep State.
3: Oh, cool. I'd love to hear more about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, especially, yeah, because all the things you've kind of been saying about maybe like the limits of, of a digital game, something that we kind of also were feeling and thinking, and also the relationship with gaming and the classroom. We're obviously thinking about this in relation to like, almost like our students as the audience through which we view a lot of these things, you know, like even a lot of my own work is on mental health and anxiety. And I feel like a lot of that was because I saw it in my students, like mirrored back on me and made me think about it more. So yeah, this relationship of like the materiality of the game and and pedagogy, I think really connects with what we're trying to do with the game.
0: And we also, the part of the impetus for designing the game was that many of our students were telling us that they dreaded going home for the holidays with their families and because they couldn't talk about political issues because you know some of their family members were really deep in the grips of these fantasies and so uh they would say you know like all we can do is play board games it's the only like non-controversial topic so we thought well what if we what if we created a board game that allowed people to talk about this in a kind of like funny humorous but also meaningful way so
3: Oh, well, that sounds so exciting. And I'm really excited that you mentioned humor. I think humor has such power, um, particularly um, with really difficult and complex and hard things. That sounds super exciting.
0: I was just you know, like echo what you were saying that I think for the three of us, like working on this game together is also a really wonderful way of thinking together. And yeah, and pro, you know, I, I really take to heart what you said about the creation of the game in some ways being, more
1: transformative than the playing of the game. Yeah. Mm. I thought of that you're, too. Yeah, absolutely.
3: You're materializing your, your thinking because you're working with the, the materiality of the game. It, I find for myself when I materialize something, um, it, it is absolutely transformative. Another colleague, Nassim Parvin at Georgia Tech, we're working on a series of feminist philosophical toys that are all um, movable paper structures um, So playing on like the philosophical toy, like the zoetrope and thalmatrope and so forth. Uh, But these are meant to be accessible. You cut and fold and make them yourself, um, ideally in community. But that's forced us to really deal with our understanding of feminist philosophy in in a different way, you know, beyond the textual. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the text is like the traditional material of philosophy, right? But having to put it into paper sculpture essentially like it, it gets us um, wrestling with it and engaging with it in, in a very different way that for me has been much deeper mm. uh, than than I had in text kind of alone I think you're doing that with, your, with the materiality of the board and card right
2: thanks so much Rebecca for doing this we really appreciate it
3: it was such a pleasure to get to meet you all and thank you for reaching out and I hope we can continue the conversation. I would really love to. Yeah,
1: so another really fascinating discussion here that made me actually think a lot about the process behind our own project and our uh, thinking that has generated our, our current thinking about conspiracy games and counter games and uh, I thought it was I was really um, interested to hear from uh, Rebecca's perspective the those insights into um, gaming interventions that are based on on her uh, her, her feminist critique and the, the perspectives that she's taking in her theoretical work how entangled they are with the materiality of games and the process of design and to realize that in the end we are also experiencing some of the benefits as a, a small community um, of uh, thinkers that are getting uh, their hands onto, the materiality and, and the practicality of game design and I, and I, I think it was really illuminating because it, it, it did make me think about uh, that perhaps sometimes you might be asking the wrong question around where this empathy and community building, at which level does it lie, does it happen and, and maybe it's not so much at the level of play or not only at the level of play but it's also at the level of creating. Uh, the parameters within which that play takes place. So perhaps you know, maybe maybe an obvious point, but one that I hadn't really thought in that way before. And um, yeah, and and I really love this idea of of a meta game of of then what could be uh, then perhaps the answer to an effective counter game is uh, lies in precisely the process that will build uh, the game. So the meta game itself becomes a counter game tool. Um, yeah, so yeah, these this were my immediate thoughts.
0: Yeah, uh, I wanna echo that. I think um, there is a discourse on the metagame by uh, Stephanie Bullock and Patrick Lemieux who hopefully will be able to get on the show at some point. Um, they have a really interesting book called Metagames, which is you know, partly about this idea about, about how players make games, but it's also about the kind of whole world around the game, like the, the context, the broader context in which a game is possible. Um, so I agree, I think we may need a, since they've already, um, defined the metagame as slightly, I mean, their notion of the metagame would encompass this notion of the metagame. I think there would need to be another term as well of the game, but I also want to link it to something that I know we've been thinking about, uh, in a piece that is currently under review, um, which is that like, uh, a lot of the kind of rebellions we've been seeing, Uh, In this moment, not necessarily rebellions to celebrate, uh, have been from people who are sort of uh, recognize that the game of sort of neoliberal global capitalism is rigged and are insisting on their right to create a kind of new game inside of that. And I think in our article, we talk about the GameStop phenomenon, which now we could probably extend to the NFT phenomenon and the blockchain, uh, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency phenomenon. Um, and also the sort of QAnon explosion on January sixth in, in the Capitol in the United States, and the argument being, and we'll see what the reviewers think and what we think after the reviews. But the argument being that ultimately, this is a rebellion. These are rebellions, or sort of index a kind of uh, dissatisfaction with living in a world where everything's been made into a kind of um, into a game you can't win. Um, and so now people are kind of creating their own rules, creating their own games. And I think it speaks to that incredible joy that comes from uh, both breaking rules, but also making new rules and recognizing in a weird way that that rules are not eternal, uh, endless structures, but are something that are produced, um, but also to the incredible dangers of that, because uh, I mean, something that we go into in that article is the long tradition um, within modernity, uh, you know, which gets articulated variously. We talk a little bit about the Marquis de Saad and Adorno and Horkheimer's uh, approach to the Marquis de Saad and Nietzsche and and sort of later fascist thinkers who, once you sort of throw out the idea that the rules are state of society are stable and, uh, uh, you know, eternal you can go one direction with that which is towards new horizons of justice and peace and harmony and cooperation but the other direction is just to unleash uh unfettered cruelty and destruction because there are no rules i mean if human rights are just a game that someone invented for us to play and we disbelieve the game then you no longer need to obey the ideal of human rights uh or if you know american democracy or whatever it is these, these you know if the capitalist economy is a set of fabricated rules, then what prevents those who understand that from, uh, taking it upon themselves to, uh, break those rules in horrifying ways. So it's a, it's an interesting moment to be. Honest.
2: Yeah. And I think the importance of that history really matters, you know, because I think Rebecca really spoke to this, like it's never in a vacuum. So if you kind of understand that, okay, maybe these rules are pillable and flexible and can change. Well, they're existing in the context, again, of this neoliberal capitalist society that's, you know, individuated and and selfish and driven by particular kinds of markets. And, And I've been thinking a lot about markets lately. And I wonder if there's like a way to gamify markets in a way that's not how Rebecca described QAnon, which I think was really interesting about how it's like, it's not fully participatory. It's like a small cabal of people who are doing a lot of the interpreting. And then everyone else is kind of sucking it up. And if there was a way that you could make a more participatory version of of the game, of a gamification, is there a way we could kind of create like a meta game of like, you know, uh, a new kind of democratic market or, you know, a solidarity economy or, you know, these kinds of things through the principles of gaming, I think it's really interesting. And I think another thing that for me just kind of is reiterating is like, you know, the importance of uh, and I think we all know this of, of feminist epistemology and feminist thinking for basically all forms of like radical theorizing, radical praxis, radical action. You know, like it really is all kind of in some of those critiques of queering and troubling and reimagining even just the basic parameters of how we think about play and how we think about rules, and 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 really, I really appreciated her focus again on like the the exploitation of emotion and empathy because I really think that like one of the the, the strange paradoxes of our society today is it's sort of like the most emotional it's ever been, you know, someone like Donald Trump won based on nothing but like affective appeals. But at the same time, we're still living in this like imaginary of like very rational, logical, and this tension of like highly emotive, highly kind of fragmented. But then this this kind of still in this artifice of rationality, I think creates a lot of tensions. And I think a lot of feminist epistemology and the things we talked about in this conversation can help
1: us to unpack that more. You've been listening to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties.
0: For more information about this podcast, to listen to other episodes, or to learn about the broader project of which it is a part, please visit http://conspiracy.games.
3: We'll see you next time.